text today can be found in verses 7 through 13. And we will be looking at the church of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And this is not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania didn't even exist at this time. But I'm certain that the city of Philadelphia got its name from the Bible. As many cities in America at that time were named after biblical names. And uh, we're going to be looking at this church of Philadelphia, which I entitled the church with the open door. Let us read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you today. Open our eyes, O Lord. Help us to behold wondrous things out of your law. Open our heart, O Lord, that, that our hearts may be sensitive to what you say to us and that we may be moldable and, and changeable before your eyes. O Lord, please also make us, O Lord, to hear from you, O Lord, to, to hear your word, and not just be hearers, but doers. Grant me, O Lord, the ability to speak forth. Inspire my tongue, my mind, and my heart. May I be able to articulate clearly and coherently what this message is to the Church of Philadelphia. Lord, may we be observant and obedient to the word here today. And may it change us in the inside out. May you be glorified, O oh Father God. In your name we pray, amen. You know, as I go through this series, I'm, I'm constantly reflecting upon the church in general throughout the church age and currently now. And uh, some of the things that I read sometimes in, in the news and in the Christian post are absolutely horrific. I'll spare you from some of the things that I read. But it's hard to believe that there are places that gather together that call themselves Christians and practice and do the things they do. They're, they're just the obvious, obvious wrong churches. They're under false doctrine. They're deluded. They are 
what I would say, the scripture says here, synagogues of Satan. They think they're Christians, but they're not. And then on the other hand, you have churches that are faithful to the word. They do endure, but they have problems. And we've seen some of the churches like that here. And I think our church probably fits in that category. For the most part, we've been faithful to the word, but we have our problems. We're imperfect. And for the most part, that will be the case until we get to heaven. And if you think you found the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. <laughs> there is no perfect church this side of heaven. Philadelphia is one church, however, that stands out as truly remarkable and that the Lord has nothing negative to say about it. Compare that last week when we looked at the church of Sardis and Christ had nothing good to say about them. And when you look at the contrast between the two churches, it's, it's significant to see that they really appear different outwardly. The church of, Th of Sardis, which we looked at last week, was a church that had a reputation of being alive, right? It was, a, it was a successful congregation. It was large. It was thriving. And it had all the earmarks of growth and, and uh, um, development. And yet Jesus had nothing good to say. The only thing he said is, you're dead. It's a dead church. And on the other hand, we see the church here in Philadelphia. And the Lord says nothing bad about them. In fact, it's nothing but good, does he say. And, and notice... Also the difference, I know, verse 8 says, that you have but little power. You have but little power. This is a small church that in the scope of things seems powerless. Their influence is small. Their ability to grow is small. They seem insignificant, but yet the Lord is with them and commends them. It's a reminder that all that glitters isn't gold, right? Not every church that is bursting at the seams and looking good does God look upon with favor. Not every church that looks small and weak is God looking at with disapproval. Through all these churches, the common denominator where Christ sees as the most important thing is faithfulness and endurance. Living in a world that is hostile to our faith, living in a world that opposes what is taught in the Bible, Christ cares more about us following him and keeping his word than about all the other tricks in the book. We're not here to impress man, we're here to glorify God. And the church of Philadelphia stands out as a church of remarkable character, much like Smyrna, the church received unqualified praise from the Lord. It is one of the only two churches. So what do we know about Philadelphia? Well, first, it's located about 30 miles to the southeast of Sardis, the last church we left off on, and about 60 miles east of Smyrna. The city was strategically located at a juncture of a major trade route leading to the central high plateau of the region of Phrygia and Lydia. It earned its nickname, the Gateway to the East. The ancient Greeks considered it as a missionary base, bringing Hellenistic culture to the rest of the world. And so this idea of Philadelphia being a gateway and a door to the rest of the world is significant and plays into 
the words that Christ appropriates to the church here. It's also located at the base of a great volcanic plain to the north, made the soil very fertile in the area. As a result, Philadelphia became known as the wine-making capital of the region, similar to our country's Napa and Simi Valley. Um, this was an area that was well known for its wines, and thus, in the pagan context, became the capital city, and their patron deity was Bacchus. Bacchus in the ancient Greek pantheon was the god of winemaking. He was worshipped in feasts with drunkenness and ecstatic frenzies. And thus we get the English word bacchanalia, which is the understanding of getting drunk. And so it is in this city where you have this going on that the church is having a very little influence, but God is with them and they are the Lord is well pleased with their ministry. However, being close to this area also meant, as they were close to the volcano, they were often struck by earthquakes. And in particularly in AD 17, an earthquake rocked that region so bad in um, the city of Philadelphia was pretty much leveled. It was right on the fault line. And so what does the Lord say to this church? What is his words to it? What is his message? I've entitled this the church with the open door because just as Philadelphia was known as the city with the gateway to the east, it was the, the city with the door to the east so that, so that Hellenistic culture can be brought. In the same way, the Lord sees this as a church with an open door for the gospel, an opportunity to spread the good news of Christ to the world. So let's look at what he says. First, we look at the sovereign Lord over his church. He says in verse 7, to the angel of the church, Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one's opens. Now, this is quite different, um, unlike all the other churches, where Christ refers to himself with the descriptors found in chapter 1. The description the Lord uses here of himself is not contained in chapter 1, but rather um, is fresh and new. And we see that they are all drawn from the Old Testament, revealing Christ's deity. Um, and so there are three particular things that the Lord brings out here, referring to himself. He is the Holy One. Often in the Old Testament, and particularly in the, uh, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, it is often uh, referred to the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. And Christ is presenting himself here as the, the true one, the holy one of Israel. That is, he is the son of God. He reminds his listeners that he is indeed sovereign. And he is not only sovereign, but he is true. And I think that this is important because when we think of Christ over his church, we have to realize that he is in power. He is in control. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He knows what's going on. And he himself is pure without blemish. And he expects his people to be the same way. He is also the true one. And this is referring not only to the very fact that Christ comes to reveal truth, but all truth resides in and of himself. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. See, the concept of truth seems relative to humanity as we wrestle and debate and argue over how to perceive reality. But if you want to know the truth on anything, you look to Jesus. 
He is the source of all truth. He is the embodiment of truth. He is the personification of truth. And so therefore, when Jesus speaks, he doesn't say, well, it's my opinion or in my humble opinion. No, but the Lord says, verily, verily, I say unto you. That term or that phrase, verily, verily, means truly, truly, I say to you, I am telling you the truth. And that is something that's so important in a day and age where truth seems so evasive, doesn't it? We live in a world where opinions vary and it almost seems it's hard to come and uncover the truth. There's so many different uh, uh, ways of twisting the truth and maligning the truth. People do not love the truth. People love falsehood. Because falsehood keeps people comfortable. But it is the truth that resides in Christ. And when you've come to know him, you know that he is the one who is true. And because of that, you can trust him. You can have confidence in him. You can't say that about anyone or anything else in this world, can you? Only Christ is 100% true and you can trust him 100%. The next Christ describes himself as having the keys of David. Jesus holding the keys of David is a, is a messianic reference um, and it points back to the old co- covenant. And what it tells us about Christ is that Christ is in complete control over the royal household, over the household of God. David was, was the king who would be the shadow and the, the foretype of Christ. He was a man after God's own heart. He is um, the, one of the most heroic figures in the old covenant. And it is after him and his lineage that we are told the Messiah would come. And so whoever has the keys of David is the one who opens the door and closes the door to the kingdom of God. He has power and control over the royal household. And if you find the background to this in Isaiah chapter 22, um, we see, I'm going to ask you to turn there, turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22. We can see the background that informs the passage we're looking at. Chapter 22, verse 20. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David, and he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open." And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house, and they will hang on him whole honor in his father's house, and the offspring issue in every small vessel from the cups of the flagons. And so here God is prophesying of, of this man, Eliakim, who will inherit the keys of David and who will, will have control over the royal household and admit those who belong and keep out those who do not belong. And Christ fulfills this prophecy. He fulfills this ultimately as the one who has the kings to the kingdom of God. He alone has the authority to open the door of salvation. In John chapter 10, he makes it clear that he is the door. He is the gate. And you cannot come to God unless you enter through him. He is the entrance into the kingdom. Not only that, but it's important to note that Christ has given the keys to the kingdom to the church. 
who is his body. We are the body of Christ. Remember, Christ dwells in heaven as the fully God-man, fully man, fully God, and he, he rules the heaven and the earth. We exist here on earth carrying out the work of the Lord as his body, his spirit dwells in us, and thus we have these keys as well. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 through 19, what did Lord say to Peter? He says, you, Peter, are the rock on which I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We have that authority. We have that authority. And how do we have that authority? We have that authority by bringing the gospel to people. By bringing the gospel to people, the good news of Jesus Christ, the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the word of Christ. And we present the door, the open door to the kingdom of God so that all may enter and come in. And by virtue of that, we also close the door to the kingdom for those who are not worthy or those who Christ tells us cannot enter. And so therefore, we realize that the church is the place where Christ indeed has opened the door that no man could shut and shuts the door no man could open. We see this in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 14, 27, that after the success of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they give a report to the church of Antioch on how their ministry went and listen to what they say. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he, that is God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so we see here that this door has been opened. In fact, the Lord tells the church of Philadelphia, if you look down in verse two, uh, verse 8, rather, he says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door. That door that's been opened to them is the door to the kingdom. And all those who have entered in, both Jews and Gentiles, have an equal standing with God. They have entered into the family of God, into the royal household. And so with that said, we see here not only Christ sovereign over his church, but as him granting free access. See, that's the beauty. That's the beauty. The door is wide open to you and you come through and you become part of the royal family, become adopted into the kingdom and you're able to have access to the Father. Jesus says, no man can come to the Father but through me. There are many religions in the world. There are many people trying to get to God in various ways. And some of them, you know, are very respectable. Some of the religions are, are you, it's commendable, all the good works that they do. But if you're not going through Jesus, you're trying to circumvent and go around him, you cannot get access. There's only one door. There's only one way. And you need to all go through that door. And the door's open. And Christ calls, come, come. No, no, Lord, I'm going to go my way. That's a you keep searching for another way in you're not getting in secondly the commendation in verse 8 through 10 the Lord expresses his intimate knowledge of the church and he's well pleased with the church he says collectively to them you have kept my word and have not denied my name the pressure to deny the name of Christ was real remember as I said all along the persecution that was developing at this time uh, was all related to imperial worship and the worship of the emperor and so you were being forced as Christians to um, offer annual sacrifices to Caesar. And you would go into a temple and burn incense and say, you know, Caesar is Lord. 
That would contradict everything you knew as a Christian because the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is Lord. To claim Caesar was Lord was to attribute deity to Caesar. And anyone who is a Christian knows that Caesar is a man. In fact, Caesar is a broken man and Caesar is in need of salvation just like every other man. So for me to say Caesar is Lord is to lie about my God. Furthermore, it's to deny Jesus. It's to deny Christ. So no Christian could conscience can offer sacrifices to Caesar. To do so is to deny Christ. It is clear that the Philadelphians had remained intact and faithful. They had not collectively denied Christ. They were withstanding the pressure to conform. And furthermore, they kept Christ's word. They were obedient to his commands. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, I believe, is very relevant in our passage today. Because in John chapter 8, it speaks about those who are true believers, those who are false believers, those who are truly part of the people of God, and those who think they're the people of God, or those who lie about being the people of God. And so it says in verse 31 of John chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been slave to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. And so Christ makes this promise. If you abide in my word, if you keep my word, you are truly my disciples. That's the path to true freedom. Now, the Jews were misunderstanding what he was saying. We've never been enslaved, which is, which is a downright lie. For 400 years, they've been enslaved by pagan empires. They don't even know what they're talking about. But he says something very important. We're all slaves and slaves of sin. Every human being is a slave to sin. We're born servants to sin. This sin nature controls you. Its impulses dominate you. It makes you do the things you don't want to do and not do the things that you should. And that's the kind of slavery that Jesus came to set us free from. That's the servant servitude that Jesus came to liberate us from. To free us from serving sin to serving him. And the Philadelphians understood that. They were keeping his words. They understood what it was to be free in Christ. They were resolved and firm, even in the face of opposition, like Smyrna. They too experienced persecution, but they had very little power. Again, relatively speaking, compared with the rest of the world, compared with the church of Sardis, they were powerless. They were a minority. They had little influence. And while it may seem to be discouraging that their size and stature were small, Contrast that with the church of Sardis with large. God had his favor upon them. You see, what God sees and what we see are two different things. I think this is important for us to remember. I think Christians in general today, evangelical Christians in America, are just looking back with in, into the past of the, of the days of when Christians dominated uh, politics in America when Christians dominated the worldview in America. And yes, while it's true that Christianity and, 
and biblical ideology did inform much of the development of our country and there was this resurgence in the 80s of the so-called moral majority. That's not the case anymore. The reality is that secularism and atheism is by and large the majority today and Christians are the minority. You do well to accept that we are a minority. You do well to accept that we are powerless, relatively speaking. God didn't call us, you know, to exercise power on this earth. He came and called us to exercise power of the kingdom. When Christians become too uh, um, enraptured and too uh, um, devoted to obtaining power in the here and now, they lose their way. God didn't call us to that kind of power. He called us to understand that our power resides not in our strength, in our physical capacity, in our leadership, in our dominion of this world, but in power in the kingdom. Spiritual power to tear down strongholds. The power to preach the gospel and to invite people into the kingdom. The power to influence people for good. Christians had very little power in this time. They were being slaughtered left and right. And yet by the third century, the whole Roman Empire was converted into Christianity. Not by the sword, not by political intrigue, but by the power of the gospel. We do well to remember that. We do well to remember it is Christ who is all-powerful. He's the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He sets up kings and he brings kings low. We serve him. We do not serve the people of this world. They were powerless in the face of Jewish persecution. It's evident from the passage that it was the Jews who were their enemies in the city. He says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews or not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, the Jewish persecution is nothing different and nothing surprising in the early church. We see that throughout the book of Acts. We see that here uh, in the seven churches of, of Asia Minor, that Jews were very much hostile to Christianity. And as they had a good standing with the empire, they did everything in their power to distance themselves from the church, to present the church as oppositional and to defiant to the empire and to bring about persecution. In fact, the Jews reveled in bringing persecution against Christians. And so they were experiencing hostility from the Jewish community. However, the Lord wants to remind them that in spite of this, he has a plan for them. And also to show them the stark contrast between them and the Jews. There are two things that the Lord says to them. First, the door was open to them, which we referred to earlier. And I want you to think about the bigger picture here. The bigger picture here is that the door was open to them and not to the Jews. God had closed the doors on the Jews in this period of time. And there was a reason for that. Romans chapter 11 makes it very clear. It was to provoke to jealousy the Jews by saving the Gentiles. The door was now open to the Gentiles and they were invited into the kingdom. The Jews, on the other hand, no longer had this claim on the kingdom of God. They did not have the authority to grant access to the kingdom because they themselves were not in the kingdom. The Lord describes them as the synagogue of Satan. You can't get a more offensive term than that. And that goes right back to John chapter 8. We were talking about abiding in the word of Christ. And listen to what Jesus says in verse 39, following up. So they answered him, Abraham's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. 
But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if you were of, if your God was your father, then you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's not, he does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth and you do not believe me, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. And the reason why you don't hear them is because you're not of God. Notice what Jesus says of the Jewish people in Philadelphia. He says they say they are Jews, but they are not. They lie. They're like their father, a liar. And you see, this comes down to basically all religions that deny Christ, all religions that persecute Christianity, all religions that refuse to come under the authority of Jesus. They are liars. They are children of the devil. It doesn't matter how religious and how pretty they look. Because they're following a lie. They're following the lie of Satan. They believe the lie of Satan. They perpetuate the lie of Satan. These are clearly not the people of God. In fact, not only had the Jews of this period uh, failed to have the authority to open the doors to the kingdom to others, but they've actually closed the door of the kingdom to people. They were actually guilty of closing the door. Matthew 23, 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. The church in Philadelphia had a place at the table with Jesus. They had entered the kingdom of God. They were the people of God. And the Jews, enraged with jealousy, couldn't see that because they were blinded by their own national pride. God has a plan for the Jews, and so we don't write them off. Even during his time, God is still saving Jews, and throughout the church age, he's saving Jews, and the church is made of both Jews and Gentiles, and we know as we get close to the end of the age, we know that all Israel will be saved. We know that there will be a great influx of Jewish believers into the kingdom. And so we do not look down upon the Jews, because no more than the branch looks at the root and, and, uh, and speaks ill of the root. Where the branches, Israel's the root. And then the Lord says, I will make them come down before you and bow at your feet. Know that I've loved you. Well, beautiful are those words, to know that I have loved you. One day, every Jew will know that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he is, he is the, the Christ. And we know that the scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But yet in this, this language, the Lord says, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. What does that mean? I, that's a difficult saying. And what, what, what is the meaning of this? Well, one possibility suggested that this is referring to Jews living there who will eventually come to church and they're going to become converted themselves. They'll become Christians and they'll be part of the community, the people of God there in Philadelphia. I don't think that that's what this is referring to. The bigger emphasis here is recognizing who the people of God are and understanding who are the people of God are. You see, the people, the Jewish people thought they were the people of God, but they were deceived themselves and deceiving others. 
They thought that they had the kingdom, and in fact, Jesus says, you're, no, you're part of the synagogue of Satan. On the other hand, the true people of God, those whom God loves, are the church, both Jews and Gentiles. And I think that what's informing this passage is, again, the Old Testament. The book of Revelation calls back a lot, echoes a lot to the Old Testament, particularly prophetic utterances. Uh, listen to some of the prophecies Isaiah gives. In Isaiah 45, 14, thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and they will bow down to you and they will make supplications to you. Surely God is with you and there is none else, no other God. So this prophecy is talking about a day when the pagan nations will come and they will bow before Israel and they will bow before the God of Israel. In Isaiah 49, 23, it says, And kings will be your guardians, and their princesses your nurses, and they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth, and they will lick the dust of your feet, and you will know that I am the Lord. Again, this is prophetic of the pagan Gentiles of the world coming and bowing at the feet of Israel. Again, Isaiah 60, 14 and the sons of those who afflicted you will come bowing to you. And on those who despise you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. You see what's going on here? In a sense of dramatic irony, Christ is saying that the fulfillment of this prophecy is actually going to be reversed. It is Israel. It is well, I shouldn't say it is, it is the Jewish people, the ethnic Jews who think they are the true Israel who will be bowing to the true Israel of God. The people of God made up of both Jews and Gentiles and they will be licking the dust off their feet. It's a reversal of fortunes. Rather than the Gentiles groveling at the feet of the Jews, it is the Jews who will be groveling at the feet of the Gentiles. It's a stern rebuke to those who think they're the people of God and are not. I got to tell you, there are many churches today that are also synagogues of Satan. People that think they're Christians. People that think they're God's people and they're perpetrating lie after lie after lie after lie. I read one article this week and it made me want to vomit of a pastor who claims that his church does not believe in the lies of the evangelical church of a father who abuses his son and promotes child abuse of a bloody religion that teaches sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. I can go on, but it was just blasphemy after blasphemy after blasphemy. Any person who's sitting in that church, or what about a church, obviously this is wrong, where a pastor comes into the church dressed in drag and says, this is our freedom in Christ, follow me. Is that a church of God? They believe they're the people of God. They believe it. They sincerely believe it. There are many people out there who think they're on their way to heaven and they're sincerely wrong. We may seem weak 
We may seem powerless. Mark this well, Christianity, true Christianity, biblical Christianity will always be a minority in the world. Always. 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 You will be a minority all the time. You will always be the person who's the minority in your group. You will always be the minority at work. You will always be the be of the minority opinion. Wherever you are, you're always going to be the stick in the mud who seems weak and powerless and different. You will always, and embrace that. So it was for Jesus, so it'll be for you. It's interesting in Isaiah 60, 14, that the Lord said, they will call you the city of the Lord. And in verse 12, it tells us, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. You can see this is an exact correlation and fulfillment. Finally, the promised rewards. There are two promised rewards here. First is the promise of protection from the soon coming trial. The promise is I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the world. And there's two possible meanings here. One, this is referring to the end times, the great tribulation that will come upon the earth before the second coming of Christ. I think there's some, some good reasons why someone may come to this conclusion. But I think this is speaking of the overall judgments of God that are poured out on those who dwell on the earth throughout all of church history. From the first advent to the second advent of Christ through the church age, there are always going to be trials and tribulations, wars and rumors of wars, times of difficulty that will come upon all the men of the earth. The promise is that God will preserve his people. In Revelation chapter 8 through 9, God speaks about the bowl judgments and he speaks about the trumpet judgments and these are judgments that come upon all those who dwell on the earth, which is a figure of speech that refers to those in the pagan world. But God always promises protection for his people. In Revelation 7, 2, 3, it says, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun and with the seal of the living God, he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Remember in Egypt, when God brought the ten plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians for punishment and wrath, for all that they had done to God's people, it was the people of Israel that were safe and secure in Goshen, and the plagues had not touched them. Remember, guys, the reason why we escaped the judgment of God is because Christ took it for us. You and I deserve judgment just as much, if not more, than everyone else in the world. But God showed his love to us. God showed his love to the world that whoever believes in his son shall not come under judgment, but have the gift of eternal life, forgiveness of sins. Jesus bore the wrath of God. He bore the judgment of God so that you and I can find ourselves forgiven, to find ourselves um, avoiding judgment and instead entering into the peace and the power of Christ. The Lord says, hold fast till I return and I will make you pillars of the church. I will make you pillars in my kingdom. 
Now we've been waiting 2,000 years for his return. It can be easy to grow weary. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christ will not come back till every one of his sheep is accounted for. Remember the parable of the good shepherd? He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. Until that number is filled, Christ is not coming back. Don't be anxious for the return of the Lord. But remember something. It may seem like a thousand years for you, but it's only a day for God. Time moves at a different pace for the Lord. He's outside of time and space as we are. And so we're reminded to, to remain faithful and hold fast till Christ returns. And to be a pillar. Oh man, what a blessing if you think of that. What is a pillar? A pillar is what holds up a building. It's, it's what holds up the temples in the ancient world. But we're told that we are designed as a spiritual temple, right? The temple of God is no longer in Jerusalem built with stones and brick and mortar, but it's built upon the people of God with chief, Christ is the chief cornerstone, the apostles as the foundation, building person upon person, soul upon soul. We're told in Galatians 2.9 that Peter and John and James were pillars of the church. We're told that ourselves in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. You see what Christ is saying here is that those who remain faithful and steady as a rock during testings and trials will be pillars of strength in the kingdom of God. We look back in history and we see those pillars. We see those uh, men and women who have stood fast and stood firm in times of great difficulty. We look back to them, but Lord willing, one day they'll look back on us and say, those Christians were resolved and faithful and firm even in times of great difficulty. Let me conclude. The Lord has opened freely a door for all people to come to him. He's opened the door not only for us to be saved, but he's opened a door of opportunity for us to serve him. We don't always get opportunities in life, right? Sometimes opportunities come around once in a while, right? It could be that opportunity for a good investment. It could be that opportunity to buy a house at the right time. It could be an opportunity to take a position at a certain company. I've lived long enough to know that when you don't take those opportunities, they're gone and you never get that chance again. And I'm sure every one of you could look back at your life and look at some missed opportunities, right? That door opens and then it closes real quick. You have to be quick, you have to be fast, and you have to act out in faith. But it's the same thing spiritually speaking. We have to always be ready to walk through the doors that God opens for us for ministry. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work is open to me. He wanted to go back to Jerusalem, but the door was open and he stayed in Ephesus for three years and preached the gospel. And also Paul says in Colossians, pray for me that God may open a door for the word to declare the gospel. Or in his time in Troas, he says, I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though the door was opened to me for the Lord. My spirit was not at rest because I could not find my brother Titus there. 
God's opening doors for us constantly. He opens up doors for us to serve the local church. Has God given you a gift? Has he given you an ability that you can use for the benefit and good of others? When that opportunity comes to your door and says, why don't you serve in the church? Oh, no, maybe someone else should. I don't know. I'm kind of... Don't do that. Take that opportunity. Do it. Don't start making excuses of why you shouldn't take the opportunity and walk through that door. Do it. That opportunity may never come again. When the Lord opens the door to witness to others, maybe God is putting you in life for someone they're going through a difficulty and you could see the doors wide open. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Speak to this person. Well, I don't know. I may offend them. But what are you thinking? That's not reasoning from God. That's reasoning from the world. I can tell you so many times I've seen in my life that when people have stepped out in faith in that open door and shared the gospel with an unbeliever, there's conversions, there's people's lives are changed because that person took a step of faith and took the opportunity presented to them. Remember, remember this. If you won't take the opportunity, God has plenty of other people that will. It's a privilege to serve God. On the same time, remember this. There are times when we want to open a door that's closed. All your strength can't push it open. We may see the flip side of this. You're, you're witnessing to someone and sharing the gospel and it's obvious the door's closed. They're mocking you. They're blaspheming God. They're cursing. The more you try to push them into the kingdom, the more they're going to blaspheme. You're causing them to blaspheme and curse God. Know when the doors close and know when to walk away. Don't try to push your way in ministry. Be patient. Wait on the Lord. Last but not least, a reminder of the day of salvation. The door will not always be open for us. Listen to what the Lord says in Luke 13, verse 24. Strive. To enter through the narrow door. Strive. That word strive means agonize. It's painful. Think of yourself squeezing through a really narrow door. It takes effort. The door's open, but you're pushing and agonizing through. He says, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. And you'll begin to say, well, we ate and drank in your presence and, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know you where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. You could appropriate particularly to Philadelphia. 
It's the same for us. We've heard the Word's teaching. We've heard the Lord's teaching. We've, we've been under the Word of God. The door is open to you now. One day the door will be closed. People will try to get in. And the Lord said, you can't. Don't presume upon the grace of God. Don't ever presume upon, don't ever say tomorrow, I'll give my life to Christ. Tomorrow's not promised. There have been many men and women who have said tomorrow I'll, I'll do it. And they breathe their last today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've opened so many doors for us. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would strive to enter that narrow door. I pray, O oh Lord, that we would enter all those doors of opportunity for ministry. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving the doors wide open and in allowing all who come to you to be saved. I pray, Father, for those who are stubborn, for those who are hard-hearted, for those who, who are looking to go to the broad and wide path of life. Oh, Father, redirect their hearts back to you. I pray for the Jewish people, O oh Lord. I pray for those who ethnically and physically are Abraham's descendants. And yet, Lord, in so many ways, they're in darkness, they're lost. We pray, Father, for great conversion upon the Jewish people. May they be saved. May they know you as their Messiah. And Father, more importantly, I pray for your people. Help us, Lord, who stand firm and resolved, who endure during difficulty. Help us to remember the great promises. Help us to remember, O oh Lord, that our strength relies not in ourselves but in you. And I pray that we would live our lives for you. And forgive us, Lord. Forgive us when we don't live as we're supposed to. Please bless this word to our hearts. In Christ's name, amen.